With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com slash insights. Greetings, fellow investors. I'm Matthew Cochran, a lead advisor at 7investing, where it is our mission to empower you to invest in your future. We do that by providing monthly stock recommendations to our premium members and educational content that is freely available to everyone. Listeners, today I am very excited to introduce The Science of Hitting, one of my favorite investment columnists who has now written more than 700 articles on Guru Focus over the past nine years. He is one of the most informative follows on Fintwit, where he can be found at TSOH underscore investing and hosts The Science of Hitting podcast on major podcast players everywhere. Science, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. Uh, Happy to have you. Happy to have you. Science, uh, why don't you just start off by telling us how you first got into investing? Yeah, so my background when I uh, was going off to college, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And my, my dad was a plumber or is a plumber. So I went to school for building construction. And I did that for a few semesters and quickly realized that that was not going to be uh, the route I wanted to go down. So around that time, I can't remember how, but I stumbled across the the Berkshire shareholder letters and some of other Warren, of the Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger writings and speeches and things like that. So uh, a buddy and I got got hooked. And about a year later, I want to say him and I hopped in a car from, we, we were going to school, University of Florida in Gainesville. Uh, we hopped in a car and drove to Omaha for the annual meeting, which I think was about 20 hours each way, something like that. And you know, we, we were broke college kids. So we slept in Walmart parking lots. And as, as I remember, we went to the meeting for, you know, we went to the meeting for five hours, got in the car and just drove back. I'm pretty sure. So, uh, (laughs) that was a, it was a big investment to go for the five hour meeting that they did not release the tapes on back in the day. So you kind of had to go, but, um, so anyways, I've I've been kind of hooked ever since. And, you know, I also started a, a small business when I was in a school, it was, essentially like StubHub, but it was for, there was a different classification for student tickets to college games. So it was kind of a site specifically for that. So uh, they never worked out, but it was, you know, it was the start of my like finance and business fascination, which I've, uh, I I am no longer close to being a recent college grad. So it's a fascination (laughs) I've had for a good amount of time now. So that was the start. And how would you, uh, how would you, for our listeners who aren't familiar with you, how would you describe your investment style and process? So my, my style tends to be long-term focused, which, you know, lends itself to higher quality businesses, strong balance sheets, uh, you know, be invest, being invested with managers that I, that I trust and want to be partnered with for the long term. So that would get this things like skin in the game, being compensated based on metrics that I think are reasonable, et cetera. Um, and you know, if you look at my portfolio, that kind of bears itself out. My largest holdings are Microsoft and Berkshire. I've owned both of them for close to 10 years now, and they're about 30% of my portfolio, those two names. So, you know, pretty concentrated. And if you look at the next handful of names, it it gets north of 50% pretty quick. And those names as well, um, all except for one I've owned for multiple years. So and how that lends itself in my process, you know, as I, as I look at new ideas and try to find opportunities, I, I do my best to exclusively start with business quality, which, you know, probably the easiest way to think about that would be if I look five to 10 years down the road, how confident am I that, uh, you know, earnings per share or free cash flow for sh- per share metrics like that will be, be meaningfully higher than they are today. And to the extent that's not true, obviously that would imply some sort of, you know, significant capital return instead. So, those are the kind of things I'm looking at and I'm looking for businesses that I can buy and own. And I, I'm not trying to guess re-ratings or anything like that. I, I want businesses that have the market closed for the next year or five years, that I'd, I'd be just fine owning them. So. Sure. Sure. Now that's great. Uh, let's, let's start off on a, like a higher, some higher level questions and then we'll work our way down to like some companies. Okay. Uh, the first thing like I want to ask you about is uh, 
Warren Buffett famously said, it's far better to buy a wonderful company at a fair price than a fair company at a wonderful price. So obviously growth and quality is integral to even Buffett's process. And, and talking to you, and I know you take a lot of your, uh, your uh, you learn from Buffett and like I just talking to you, like I know you, you get that too. Uh, but growth investors can't ignore valuations and value investors uh, can't ignore quality. How do you weigh a company's valuation to its growth and economic moat when studying it? You know, this is like my biggest struggle. So I ask like a lot of our guests this question just so I can like have a better time like weighing it in my own process. Yeah, and it's a huge struggle for me as well. I think this is, you know, a lot of this comes down to the to the the art of investing. And obviously, we're impacted by the fact that we kind of live through these cycles, which a cycle kind of sounds like a short term thing, but cycles are very long when you're actually living through them. So it makes it difficult to sure, kind of balance sure. those two. Uh, I think my good buddy, Bill Brewster, uh, tweeted something once that I think is spot on. He said, traditional value investors understand the role of price mitigating left tail risks traditional growth investors understand the ability of the right tail to be longer than traditional value investors appreciate the marriage of those two concepts in Nirvana, which is very hard to do. But I think that's spot on. And, you know, to kind of rephrase your, your Buffett quote, as I approach it, I, I try to focus on finding those great businesses first and foremost. And from there, you know, with anything, it comes down to opportunity costs to the extent I'm, you know, sacrificing on business quality I, I need to see a meaningful improvement in terms of the valuation, the price I'm being asked to pay. But, you know, for me, in my experience, the mistakes have been when I put too much weight on the, the price component, as opposed to focusing on business quality, management quality, et cetera. So, I mean, it, there's a lot of truth in the idea that, you know, high quality businesses and good managers can, kind of work their work their way out of a, a high valuation but of course even that has limits sure sure and uh and we'll we'll get to some of those limits when we talk about some of the companies uh you hold in your portfolio how do you how do you weigh like the 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 long-term buy and hold uh philosophy or hashtag never sell like as some <laughs> people put it on twitter uh right. versus like a a buy low sell high you know uh kind of process yeah. I mean, kind of like the last question for me, it's, it's very much uh, gray. It's not black or white. It's, it's, it's really hard to say. And I try to do what I can to maintain that long-term focus. And again, to the extent I'm, to the extent I'm in a very high quality business that I think has a long runway and has really good management, a strong balance sheet, which is, you know, we'll talk about Microsoft here in a second, I'm sure, but that's kind of a, a good example of hitting all those hitting all those uh, check boxes in those kind of situations, I do what I can to be, to be very slow to say, okay, this is expensive on whatever metric I'm going to get out now. Um, as opposed to a situation where it'd be, you know, a much more traditional kind of value investment where you're, you know, it's at 90 cents on the dollar and you're getting out because that asset is, is marked fairly. That's much harder to say for uh, certain types of assets. So when I think I have really good managers running a good business with structural tailwinds, um, I, I tend to let those run a little bit further. So I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's uh, theoretically correct, but I think in in practice that's effective for me or what I sure. feel most comfortable doing. Sure, sure. So you brought up Microsoft. So, so let's talk about Microsoft. This is a holding we both share. It's a it's a larger percentage of my portfolio too. Um, not quite as large. Um, what how, first of all, how long have you held Microsoft? It's been, a, it's, you've held it longer than me, I think. Yeah, I bought it in 2011 when I, I joked to somebody else on a pod the other day that an article I wrote at the time was uh, called Microsoft Price for Failure. <laughs> so <laughs> I can, that tells you it was a little bit of a different world in 2011. Sure. This, you know, this Absolutely. Is, this is very much a traditional value investment back in the day. So we're in a different world now, but yeah, that's, I got invested back in 2011 and I've, I've owned it ever since. So you've owned it for 10 years over time. Has your thesis for owning it evolved? Yeah, it has. I mean, it really started as a, this is an incredibly cheap business price for a lot to go wrong. And even then, as I thought about, it, I remember, I remember sitting down and basically working out how quickly does windows have to go away for this price to make sense. Cause I mean, that was part of the thesis at the time. People thought that it was the end of the PC. It was a melting thing. ice cube. 
exactly. Like back then, right. Because, yep. of, because of things like iPads or phones and, you know, it's it funny in hindsight. Yeah. They, they certainly, those new computing platforms have certainly had an impact on the amount of time that people spend on their PCs, but I don't know about you. I'm, I'm on a computer right now. So <laughs> it turns Likewise. out they're, they're Likewise. still selling computers. So that was good for Microsoft. Um, but yeah, so early on, that was, that was a lot of it. And then as time went by, you know, you got into the, the 13, 2013, 2014 period where Satya Nadella became CEO. And I, I think that period was kind of instructive before, for me, because I saw how the conversation around that hiring was framed. And it was interesting because I remember very vividly that the idea of them hiring an insider was uh, widely perceived as it would be a failure if they did it. And instead, the front runner at the time was uh, Alan Mulally, who was the CEO at Ford or former CEO at Ford. Um, and I remember as a lot of that was happening, as I started reading more into Satya Nadella and thinking about who he was and the experience that he had, and even the stories that people who had worked with him said, it's, it just seemed to me that the idea that he was inherently a bad pick because he was a Microsoft lifer was just kind of silly. And I think that was kind of my er one of my early experiences with this idea of price really influencing, influencing narratives and kind of leading to um, just kind of like faulty conclusions or people not really doing the work on something. And I think you see that with names all the time as, as people invest in something and it doesn't work out and they lose a lot of money for themselves or for clients, you know, certain companies can kind of fall into buckets where they just will not be looked at anymore because there's no chance someone would buy it again. It's just too painful or people just have certain perceptions about it. So anyways, I think Microsoft was really in that spot, um, you know, six, seven, eight years ago. And then over time, as Satya Nadella proved to be uh, a good leader and a visionary in terms of where they needed to go technologically and with some of their products, and then the cloud came and, you know, obviously today it's, it's, uh, a company that's returned to pretty significant growth and has some good structural tailwinds for the long term, and so yeah, it's a it's a very different story. But how did I manage to hold the whole whole time? I think, well, one, I have trimmed at times to be clear, um, not too much lately, but I I think I really started to appreciate in the last handful of years that idea I mentioned before, which is as opposed to getting locked into this idea that now, cause it's at 23 times earnings and previously it was at 12 times earnings that it's now overvalued. I just started to think that maybe that's not right. The, way, the right way to think about it. They really do have a five, 10, 20, or even longer uh, horizon of reinvesting into a good business where they have a good position and they have a good balance sheet. Maybe that's a, a the wrong way to think about it. Just look at something like the PE. So. Sure. No, I, I agree with you. Uh, but if your first article at the time was priced for failure, if you wrote an article now, it'd probably be priced for success. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, or maybe even priced for perfection. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe not quite that much, but it is certainly a, a lot of good news is priced in now. Where... Uh -huh. uh, and I've read your articles. I, I, I can't honestly say if I've read your most recent articles on Microsoft. I have read your articles in the past, though, on Microsoft. And I know you're thinking about the valuation. Mm -hmm. um, wh what are your thoughts on Microsoft's valuation now? I mean, now it's close to 30 times earnings, uh, over 30 times earnings, probably. Yeah, yeah, over. Um, yeah. yeah, so I think I wrote one in February, which was called When is Microsoft to Sell? And uh I, d I did not know COVID was coming, but it, I, th I think in hindsight, it turns right. out I, I wrote that it, at the exact top for the S&P 500 <laughs> for the, the pre-COVID correction of whatever, you know, 30% or whatever it was. So that was well-timed, um, you know, in that article. And I, I walked through the idea of greatness is obviously important. High quality businesses are very important. But I also, I also put a lot of weight in the fact that the future is inherently unpredictable. And Microsoft is a perfect example of that. It was the company in 2000 that needed to be broken up and was going to take over the world. And then as we were just discussing 10 years later, it was a dinosaur who couldn't do anything right. And people thought it was basically dead in a lot of ways. Now jump forward 10 years again. And it's, it's this great business that, you know, is, is viewed much more similar to how it was viewed in, in 2000. So I think I try to balance the idea that you don't want to let go of a great business because it has a PE that's 10%, 20% higher than an average business might. 
but at the same time, I'm not comfortable saying that I know where this will be in 20 years. So how I try to balance that is I think about what realistic expectations look like, you know, five or 10 years down the road. Then I try to think about what a reasonable premium would be for a great business versus an average business. Is that a 10% higher PE? No, I think that's too, I think that's too low. Do I think the PE should be two or three times higher than an average business? I think that's probably a little too aggressive. That's, that requires me to have too many thoughts about what the world looks like in 2040 or something like that. Sure, sure. Um, so as I ran that math in February, and I, I don't remember off the top of my head, I think I got to a range of, I thought a price where it made sense to maybe consider trimming was somewhere around, I think it might've been right 190 to 230, somewhere in that range. And obviously since then, you know, results have came in, um, obviously as you're discounting back those cash flows, if you move a year into the future or whatever, that price is going to move up by, you know, call it roughly 10%, something like that. So yeah, I think we've been close to, to where that is. And I'd say the only other considerations for me are, uh, what are my opportunity costs? I'm not someone who I've kind of moved away from the idea of holding a bunch of cash or at least holding a very large pile of cash. So for me, it would require the ability to find something else that I thought was more attractive. Um, which obviously may become more difficult if the market is running as it is currently. So that might impact my decision. And then the other thing I would think about would be uh, tax considerations. So obviously I'd be willing to pay taxes at a certain point, but I would have to obviously be compensated for the, for the fact that I'm going to take that hit. So those are the things I think about. And if it, if it moves up another 10 or 20% from here, then that'd be a very real possibility that I would consider trimming. Sure, sure. So uh, you were talking about Nadella earlier, and I, I remember when he, when he took over too, and I remember them talking about the Ford CEO as a possibility. I, I don't know if at the time I realized he was the front runner or not, uh, or how much of that is just like reading history and thinking I knew it at the time either. Um, but like what I what I do remember was like, or what I appreciated, uh, I think I got it to Microsoft maybe 2016. It, it, uh, and, and regret, I was looking at it in 2015 and regretted not pulling the t- trigger then. Uh, but like, I remember like they, they were, Nadella was even changing like uh, Microsoft's motto from like, you know, it was still based on all windows, like a, a computer in every house or windows in every house. It was something like that. And just like updating, he had so much work to do. Um, and we talked about your thesis changing on Microsoft over the last decade, which I mean, as it, as it should. Uh, right now, what do you think is your biggest opportunity going forward? Yeah, I mean, it's, you I know, mean, it's talking of, about, I'm sorry, let you're talking no, about ahead, like a $1.6 trillion market cap. And what I know what I get a lot, and I hold Microsoft is not the only big tech name I hold. Um, well, they're so big, how much more can they grow? And I always think like, well, the opportunities ahead of them represent like, I do, I think they can still grow. I, I, don't, I don't think that's, uh, I think that's, I think I can make that like confidently, like there's still room for growth here, whether they capitalize on that or not is, is another question. But like, so for you, what though, what is the, uh, what is their biggest opportunity you think they have going forward? So I think, you know, Nadella's used this example lately, the idea that tech spend, it's a percentage of GDP will double over the next, I think you said the next decade. And it's kind of this idea that at a very high level, Microsoft is a company that's going to help the digitization of, I mean, this is very broad, obviously, but everything. It's going to be enterprises, it's going to be SMBs, it's going to be governments, it's going to be individuals. I mean, they're playing into that trend in a big way. So as you, as you, you know, try to nail it down and quantify it, they have what they call their commercial cloud businesses, which includes what would people traditionally think of as the cloud, things like Azure, but then it includes Office 365 and their SaaS offerings, et cetera. So commercial cloud was about a $20 billion run rate in revenues at the end of fiscal 17. In the most recent quarter, it was north of $60 billion run rate. So it's been growing very significantly. Obviously, we're talking about very big numbers now too. But in the last quarter, it still grew 31% year over year. So that just gives you a sense for, I mean, this is already a a huge business if you're going to lump them all together. And it's still growing at a very rapid rate. So and I guess part of the opportunity would be continuing to grow in that. Um, you know, Goldman puts out this quarterly cloud commentary, and their most recent estimate was that 
cloud penetration of you know the addressable IT market, which obvious, obviously there's a lot of assumptions in here, but by their math, cloud penetration of the the potential enterprise adoption of these solutions is at a mid-teens percentage. So it it potentially has room to become, you know, call it five to six times larger than it is today. And obviously IT spend over time can also grow. So as I think about the results that Microsoft's actually reported, and I think about some data points like that, and I also think about their position and where they sit relative to competitors like Amazon or Google or smaller players like Slack or Zoom. I just continue to believe that Microsoft continues to be very well positioned in terms of go to market, in terms of not competing with the people they're trying to sell to in a way that some of those people might be. And I just think with the right leadership that they're in as good of a position to win as anybody. And thankfully for me, I don't think they just have, you know, a, a decent guy in charge. I think they have probably the one of the handful of best people in the world to possibly be running this company right now. Yeah, he, so. he really is. He really is. Yes. But quantifying that with any specificity, as you know, is it, it's incredibly difficult and you can get, you can get caught playing this game of how big is the TAM really. Um, obviously I think IT spend is, is a very, very, very large market, but it's difficult for me to say if that 30% growth rate is going to be 10% in three years, or if it's still going to be, you know, 20% or 25%. Sure. Of course. Of course. And, and it's like, the, it just feels like uh, to me, like, for the last several years, it was all about Azure and what they were doing and AI and things like that. And whenever Teams even came up, it was like, uh, I mean, that's not going to move the needle. Like, you know, I just thought to myself, like people talked about it sometimes, but I just thought, I mean, it's, maybe it's relevant to like uh, discussion of like Slack and its competition, but I didn't think it was relevant to my buy thesis for Microsoft. And yet even that, I mean, and, and granted COVID has been a huge tailwind for Teams, but I mean, last quarter, I mean, they were talking about 115 million daily active users on Teams, you know, and yeah. how it's like becoming a platform effect with meetings and chat and collaboration all integrated into it. And, uh, you know, even things like that are, are becoming like, well, maybe this does move the needle now. And that gets to the point of, you know, one of the things that people who are, you know, more tech focused and have a good understanding of a lot of these products and things like that, they'll say Teams is an inferior product relative to Slack and that that may very well be true. I think you need to look at the opposite. You need to flip that and realize what that means in terms of Microsoft's penetration and enterprises and SMBs and their ability to sell, you know, these offerings like E3 and E5, this office suite of products and what they can, you know, you think about what they can truly do for a CIO when they go talk to Pepsi or somebody like that, their ability to offer a very compelling product that meets so many needs is again with the right leadership and with the ability to keep getting better over time it puts them in a really good spot to to again help digitize the world a 100 100%, 100% like i microsoft is in the the great position i think where they don't have to be the best product for right. things like this because mm-hmm. of their distribution and their like you said the relationships with the cio their pricing power so they're in this great position where they can throw a lot of money at a, at something. And I think they are like where maybe in years past teams did not get the attention uh, it deserved. And now it is, but like they're in that position where they don't have to, I, I don't think they have to have the best product because of their position and dominance in the market overall. And as long as it's good enough, then I think that might just be all they need. Yeah. And I think Ben Thompson's written about this. It's kind of the idea that, um, as a discrete product, one might not be as good as something else, but when you think about them in terms of the integration, I think he means both from a user perspective and in terms of, I would think also how, how it's sold essentially, or what it, what it means for the person buying it, how much pain it can remove from their life. And obviously things like bundle economics, et cetera. But yeah, I think it's, there's a reason why Microsoft has been so successful. And I think a lot of those, a lot of those tailwinds are still in place. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So moving on, I think another company you own is Disney. Yep. Is that correct? Okay. Uh, likewise, likewise, I'm also long Disney. Uh, how long have you been a shareholder for? So I owned Fox for a few years prior to the, you know, obviously, you know, gotcha. Disney acquired the majority of, of right. 21st century Fox. So I, I owned Fox for a few years before that. And then when the deal happened, I took all shares. Okay. And so now what is your 
so you you own Fox, you inherited Disney shares. What's your thesis for holding on to the Disney shares? It's kind of funny in some ways. I I, I think in hindsight, my Fox thesis, which turned out okay, may have actually been wrong. A lot of it was predicated on the RSNs, which is the regional sports networks. And I think gotcha. I think I actually was wrong on the thesis. <laughs> it was also partly due to the strength of Fox News, which I think that part has proven to be correct. But yeah, the RSN thesis probably was not correct. So I, I, I got bailed out to a certain extent. But yeah, in terms of Disney, I think... Um, you know, I, I took a lot from Iger's book, Bob Iger, the former CEO. And I think the thing from his book or the two things from his book that really stood out to me was when he spoke about when he went to the park opening, I think it was in uh, Hong Kong. It was one of the international parks and he went to the main street parade and he saw that this is back in 2003, 2004, somewhere in that range. He saw that the characters coming down the street None of the Disney characters were from the past 10 years. The, the, the parade was full of characters like Woody from Toy Story and a bunch of Pixar characters because Disney had a deal at the time with Pixar. And he came to the realization that Disney's animation and their ability to create best-in-class IP had been lost to a certain extent and that this was truly the lifeblood of the company. And he went to the board and told them, essentially, listen, we have to do this deal. And as we know, in hindsight, that deal did happen. And subsequently, they bought Star Wars or Lucasfilm, and they bought uh, Marvel as well. So for and me, Fox. And, then Fox. and Fox as well, yeah. which is, you know, slightly different. It's not as clean of a play in my mind, but those but three deals. Came, but it, you're right. You're right. But it still came with a lot of IP, though. Definitely, definitely. And we'll see what they can do with it over time. Hopefully they can, you know, really, really get those working. But so Disney's IP as a result of those three deals is as, as far as I can see by far the best entertainment programming assets in the world. So as they went to market with the DSC offering, obviously they relied heavily on those assets and, you know, we're a year in now they have 74 million global paid subs when they launched their Disney, when they announced their DSC offerings, they said maybe we'll have 60 to 90 million in five years. So they, they, they've hit the midpoint of that, uh, after 12 months as opposed to after five years. And that speaks to a lot of things. It speaks to distribution and it speaks to good consumer facing technology and stuff like that. But it also speaks to those brands. And I, I go ahead. Uh, I just gonna say, what's amazing about that, like Disney plus is success so far. It hasn't even launched or it just now is launching. I think like actually this week, uh, mm -hmm. like in markets like Mexico, Brazil, Argentina, Chile, like, so it's, it's not even truly global yet. You know, and they already reached that goal that they had set for the five-year mark. It really is incredible, I think. If I have the numbers right, or if I have the markets right, which I think I do, the markets they're launching in this week, 400 million people live in those markets. So to your point, I mean, this right, is, right. They're, in, they're in like 20 to 25 markets right now, which obviously it's a lot of big markets like the US and India, but there, there's plenty more to come. So this has been a fantastic start. It's been significantly better than anybody anticipated. And I think it speaks to to that reality of what they bring to the table. Now, much like Microsoft, that still requires good leadership. They need to keep producing good content. They need to nurture and grow these brands over time. I think the other part of part of Disney that um, really attracts me to it as a, as a long term business to own is the fact that I think their ability to monetize IP is unrivaled as well. And this is something. Bob Iger spoke to this in an interview with Barron's, uh, I think it was in early 2019. He talked about basically competing with Comcast on the bid for those Fox assets. And he alluded to the idea that at the end of the day, they can bid more for certain IP than other people can because of the fact that they have ways to, you know, they, they have a better mousetrap, no pun intended. Right. So, right. Well, yeah. I mean, so, I mean, it, it, to your point, I, there's an old... Walt Disney diagram out there somewhere where it talks about like their flywheel and how, okay, they have like, you know, Mickey Mouse, you know, it's, it, he's in a movie and he's at the park. And when people go to the park, it makes them want to watch the Mickey Mouse cartoons more. And, and then they sell the products with everything, you know, that Mickey Mouse is on. And it, it truly is a flywheel that, that no one else can match. Like no, no one else has that kind of like the, the theme parks and the, the, the distribution and the movies like it's it, it, i agree with you it, it truly is incredible um how do you think they have managed with covid in their parks i mean it's been very difficult you know they they've since reopened 
in Orlando in Florida. And I actually, actually went there a few months ago with, I, I have a niece, a young niece, and she's a big fan of Disney. So, so we go, my sister forces me to go at least once a year. Um, and in my mind, I, I think it was probably the best experience I've ever had in the parks because it was not nearly as busy as it usually right, is. And right. they, were, they were doing a great job with social distancing, wearing masks. They, they were strict. Um, so, you know, I think they showed that they can uh, open the parks again while still doing what they need to do from a from a safety perspective so i I think they there's a path back to something that resembles you know normalcy especially as we get a vaccine or hopefully get vaccines um you know places like california are are more difficult and i don't live there so i don't i don't pretend to know what life is like in california but apparently we're doing things a little bit different here and i'm in georgia and you're in florida we're doing things a little bit different so <laughs> but eventually right. I, th- I think that all gets resolved yeah i mean they definitely uh they specifically called out california in the conference call saying they right. were like uh quote unquote extremely disappointed you know mm-hmm. uh with with the the state of things there um and then i guess so last like espn like how do you think uh like this is my this is my like the parks and COVID. I mean, that's like a, like you said, it's a temporary thing. You can see the light at the end of the tunnel. I don't know exactly when it's going to happen, but I'm fairly confident at some point things will be quote unquote normal again. Mm -hmm. Uh, ESPN is my biggest concern as a shareholder. Um, You know, it's a large part of their profits. Cord cutting is a very real trend, Um, you know, and I think they have to navigate this carefully. You know, like they said, I mean, I think they just said on their most recent conference call that like 93 of the top 100 programs on TV are still sports. There's obviously still an audience for that, but is this like a, is this like, is this an instance of a melting ice cube where it's slowly going away? I'm a father of four. I can say that uh, three out of my four are casual sports fans at best Mm -hmm. Um, with like fair interest you know, and, and one out of four, he's into it. He's all right. in. Uh, but but it does seem like the younger generation, and they have more entertainment options than I ever had uh, growing up. Like, how do you how do you see ESPN's future? I think that's a fantastic place to start because I start with it first from a sports discussion, not an ESPN discussion, and to the point you just made we've entered a different world where, you know, obviously you could have put a DVD in, in your uh, you know, DVD player 10 years ago or whatever it was. But if you just turn on the TV and wanted to watch something easily, you know, it might've been, you got to sit down at eight 30 on Tuesday to watch the big bang theory or something. Right. And with right. that came eight minutes of commercials and it, it sucked relative to what you can do today where you just turn on Netflix and you can watch five episodes of Queen's Gambit. <laughs> it, it really did. It sucked so bad. And yet we didn't know at the time because <laughs> it was just, it, it is what it is. If you wanted to watch Seinfeld, you had to be there Thursday night at nine o'clock or else you missed it. Right. And you know, like uh, for other shows, I guess Seinfeld, it's not that important to miss an episode as far as the storyline goes. But if you're into a show with a storyline, you, you have to be there. There was, uh, you could hook up a VCR to set up to record. I mean, it was such like, it was the worst. It was yeah. the worst. So now it's so easy. And, you know, the the breadth and quantity of content is insane. So I think it's a fair point that sports have more competition than they ever had before. Um, and I, I'm a big sports fan myself. And I, I there's times where previously I would have watched sports where now I say, I'm just going to watch something on Netflix or on Disney plus or on Hulu, whatever. So I I think that's a very real part of this discussion. And I think we've seen as sports have come back out of the back of COVID now, granted, a lot of places, bars are closed. There's no fans or a limited number of fans at a lot of events. So I think that takes something away from, you know, the communal aspect of these, of these things. But I think there is a real risk that, to, to your point with your children, there might be a smaller audience going forward than there had been in the past. Um, as it relates to ESPN specifically, I think in a lot of ways, some of these conversations have to uh, remain on a relative basis, meaning that ESPN's position in some ways has to be thought about relative to CBS's position or Fox's position or NBC's position. And you know, a lot of these companies are moving in different directions. They have different 
um, constraints in terms of their financial position or what their core business is doing. Um, Disney, from my perspective, is unique in the sense that they have ESPN, which is still a widely distributed uh, channel. And it's very clear what the product is, obviously. And it's, you know, there's still, despite the pay TV declines that we've seen so far, there are still roughly, you know, 80 million pay TV subs, whatever the number is. And depending on who you ask, you always get a different number, but it's somewhere around there. They still have a very clear value proposition of what they're doing. They also have ABC, which is a broadcast network that has very significant distribution. And then now they have ESPN Plus as well, which has 10 million subs. And, you know, for someone like the UFC or Major League Soccer that is trying to build an audience, potentially an audience that doesn't have pay TV, like a younger generation, there may be some way to use these different assets collectively that can be suitable for them. And, you know, thinking about the competitors, I think about someone like Comcast, they're using some of their marquee rights, like the EPL, which is uh, English soccer. They're using that to try to stand up Peacock, which is a a streaming uh, platform. But in order to do that, they have to pull content from NBC Sports. So, you know, we'll see what that means in terms of their pricing power. We'll, We'll see what that means in terms of their income statement and their ability to keep spending money. I think what you'll find is that when the NFL renewals come around, it seems like everybody's going to bid very aggressively to at least keep the, the properties that they have currently. My question is going to be, what does that mean for some of the other sports rights they have? Do they need to step away or can they only, you know, they might not be able to bid nearly as much as they did previously. And if you don't have direct to consumer assets, you know, NFL might be great for Fox, but some of the other programming that, that could work for an ESPN plus, they don't have a platform like that. So they, they have to think about it a bit differently. And then they said as such, when it, um, when it related to Sunday ticket, they said, this, this doesn't really work for our business at this time, because we're, we're just a linear distributor at this point. So I think there's a lot of discussions there that are not totally fleshed out. And I don't think it's, it's certainly not all roses for ESPN or Disney, but I think they have some opportunities going forward that, are murky, but are not talked about too often. And I wrote an article two years ago called the future of ESPN plus. And, you know, in that article, I said, this is going to take years to play out, but there's an opportunity for them to build a sports offering that is uh, very attractive for the true sports fan, which we'll see how many of those we have. Uh, Certainly something like gambling will uh, potentially help with with that absolutely so, sure sure so we'll see but yeah like like you I'm, I'm certainly up in the air on it and it's it's not so clear that it's going to work out but i think there is an opportunity that it does actually work out pretty well right right um i apologize for jumping around because uh, i know we already <laughs> talked about disney plus however like what do you what what is what should be the strategy for disney plus going forward or i guess how much new content does disney plus need to continue to be considered a almost a default streaming option in people's homes um like the mandalorian is obviously a big hit and i know they're planning a lot more launches are they going to be on the same carousel though that netflix is of where they're like netflix throws out it seems like a hundred new shows every week um you know in like almost my biggest complaint with netflix is it's like I, i spend like half an hour browsing like when i'm in between shows like if I finish a show, I'm like, I don't know what to do now. And right. uh, what what does Disney Plus have to do? Or how much money are they going to have to spend on new content uh, to to stay where they are and to continue to gain subscribers? Here's This is where I think it gets really interesting for Disney over the next handful of years. Now that they've kind of proven that they can get adoption of their streaming services, which is, let's take a market like the U.S., where they've really gone out and sold this bundle is how they've gone to market. Cause by the way, they've priced it, which is it's Disney plus it's Hulu, which is more of a general entertainment offering. It's a, more of a true Netflix competitor, even though Netflix has obviously done materially right, right. better. Yep. And then it's ESPN plus, which is kind of a different discussion, but. And Hulu have, numbers were up to 36 million, which is like yeah. a 28% increase year over year. So it's not like, it's not nothing. I think the question would be what engagement looks like relative to Netflix. And that's where you might find that. I, sure. I, I don't, I don't have the numbers off the top sure. of my head, but yep. to your point, Netflix is, it seems quite clear that for a large 
large part of the market, it's the default. It's replaced clicking on the TV and finding something to watch tonight. So I think Disney has to be honest with itself about what it wants to be and what brands fill what roles. So to your point, I think Disney Plus can be something where there's really high quality programming from those handful of of key brands. And it's, you know, one or two things a month, potentially. It might be a show from Marvel and here's the the Pixar movie that came out in theaters last month. Now it's, it's direct to consider, or it's right to Disney Plus, you know, two months after it was in theaters, something like that. So I think they can, they can do just fine with a limited quantity, very high quality content strategy. Um, as you talk about Hulu, well, to me, that's much closer to what Netflix is. And it's more of a, uh, you know, linear TV bundle kind of replacement where you're meeting, you're doing a bunch of different jobs in terms of what entertainment programming you offer. And it might be things like, you know, It's Always Sunny or Seinfeld or shows like that, that are very different than what a Mandalorian will be. So as of right now, those apps are separate. I think someone like Dan Loeb in his letter uh, alluded to the idea that he he thinks that it makes sense to collapse those, in, collapse those into a single offering. My question would be how you do that intelligently and make sure that the brands that we've already discussed re- retain their position as being you know the highest quality. Because you- It's a tough question for me. Yeah. I, I don't know how I feel about it. Uh, this is what I'll say. Uh, again, as a father of four, it's really nice to say like, hey, Saturday morning when you guys wake up, you can put on Disney Plus and watch whatever you want. Because I know there's nothing that uh, um, too objectionable. And, you know, you have concerns about them like opening up Netflix. And even though there's like plenty of great offerings on Netflix that's appropriate for all my children, there's also inappropriate things that might say recently watched because I watched it the night before and I don't want them to be like tempted to click on those things. If I'm not around, I guess like it's very easy as a parent to just be like, yeah, go into Disney plus And I don't care. I don't care right. if you watch a star Wars movie on a Saturday morning. I mean, I'm giving that as an example because like mm-hmm. Saturday morning, I, I tend to sleep in more than some of my kids. And, uh, but like, they'll, they they'll get up and they'll watch whatever you know on Disney Plus and I don't care I don't care what they watch or it's just nice to say yeah you can watch whatever you want on Disney Plus and they know they can open that app and mm-hmm. once you start integrating that like again can it work of course but it's like it's as a parent it's just like there's increasingly more things uh, that are really readily available like a click away that was not a click away when I was growing up that I might not want like my little kids, especially to see. And it's nice to have an app where it's like, you don't have to worry about that. Mm -hmm. I'll give you an example on the other side of that argument. For me on my computer, I I have my Disney plus login set up. So if I go to Disney plus, it just works. But Hulu is a desktop application for some reason, because it's probably built on different, you know, legacy architecture or something. Well, the logins are not the same. So when I go to log in on Hulu, I don't know it anymore and I need to reset the password. You know what that means? It means I close it and I go to Netflix. Right. On the TV that we have, well, on X1, Hulu is built into X1, which is Comcast's TV platform. Right. But Disney Plus is not. It's not. It is not. No. It's funny that a lot of these conversations come back to content, but I think in a lot of ways, it's the things you're talking about and what I'm talking about is they need, Disney really needs to focus on continuing to do better in terms of distribution and in terms of making it very easy for the consumer to use their product, which this is this is one of the things where I think Netflix has shown that they are a clear front runner. And, and granted, they spend a ton of money on technology and in a bunch of areas that are not content spend. So I, I, like you, I think I'm a bit torn in whether or not it actually makes sense to collapse these all into one app. And if you do that, is there a different tile for Hulu or something where it's right. rental protected or, you know, you right. can do it a bunch of different ways. And I don't have strong opinions on those, but what I do know is that they need to figure out distribution. They need to figure out, you know, kind of like common core tech architecture. So things have the same sort of feel and kind of work together in a certain sort of way. That's where I think they need to make sure that they really continue to improve. Netflix really is better. And it feels like it shouldn't be that hard 
to get where Netflix is, but mm-hmm. it must be because Amazon yeah. Prime can't do it. You know, Disney has not done it yet. And Netflix, it just is. It really is. I mean, I'm a Comcast shareholder, so I have no reason to talk bad about them. <laughs> Peacock on X1 is the app is nowhere near as good as Netflix on X1. And the Netflix voice integration on an X1 remote is probably the best user experience you can have on a, right. on a TV. It works perfectly and it'll go exactly to the show you asked for. And I mean, kudos to both of them for working together, but Comcast needs to make sure that their first party apps work just as well. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So we talked about uh, uh, holding for the long term, which we both agree on. We've talked about Microsoft and Disney. We both are bullish and shareholders. So let's talk about something we disagree on. So <laughs> uh, uh, recently, uh, the last couple months ago, we were both on Chit Chat Money together. And we, we kind of started a conversation on uh, a big bank. I, I don't know how to frame it right, but like I would guess say maybe legacy banks versus up and coming fintech companies. Um, and I guess I kind of want to talk with you like more, just like, uh, uh, double click on that conversation. Just what will the future of banks look like over the next decade? Are fintechs going to take market share from the banks or not? Let me just say what I think. And then you just tell me where I'm wrong. Perfect. Uh, (laughs) Um, I, I, I think that big banks will be largely fine. I think they have the resources to make, uh, like especially in the case of J.P. Morgan, uh, Chase, and Bank of America, they've made great apps where you can do a lot of great things. I think they have great digital offerings, and I think those kinds of banks will be fine. I think small banks, and when I say small banks, I mean like small banks. Like my parents live in a rural South Carolina community, and their town doesn't even have a stoplight. Uh, and the next town over is the big town, because it has like a CVS and a couple of restaurants and it has one bank and uh, it's like a one branch bank. And I think a bank like that serving a community like that can also survive because the, if you have a banking need in that community uh, like that's, that's where you go. However, I think the regional banks in between and um, are what is going to be in trouble. And now, I, I will say there's a lot of third-party offerings where they can go for technology help. And I think that actually might be an interesting space to look into. However, I don't think at the end of the day, they're going to have the resources to fight uh, or to can you t- to innovate as fast as the fintech companies, the, the, the squares, the PayPals that are coming up uh, that I believe will take market share. And I think that's kind of why you're seeing consolidation. Uh, you know, like last year, we uh, had a uh, BB&T merge with with Sun and mm-hmm. uh, to form Truist. And just today, today, like it was like what what great timing for our conversation. But um, PNC bought BBVA for eleven point six billion dollars, and I think you're probably going to see more consolidation like that. And and granted, I I get that that helps them with like branch density and things like that or branch efficiency. Like they can close a lot of branches and still be in the same geographical areas. It makes a lot of sense on that level. I also think though, it gives them more resources to uh, continue to compete with these digital offerings that the fintechs are bringing to the market. Uh, what did I get wrong? <laughs> Not much, I don't think. <laughs> I think I, I, I basically agree with that. I think that, yeah, some of the basically some of the mid-sized banks need to find a way to keep getting larger so they can scale their tech expense and, and be best in class in that regard. As I think about, I think about the big three as being JPM, Bank of America, and Wells Fargo, just in terms of deposit share in the United States. You don't, think, you, you don't put City up there with them? You could, but they're just not as big as a consumer franchise sure. um, in the US. So anyways, those three have, over the past 10 years, their deposit share has increased in the US. Watch. So I think that gives you a sense for, you know, along the lines of what you're saying, the big banks have been winning at the expense of the not big banks. And I, I would assume a large part of that is that technology advantage that you're referring to. Um, you know, I think part of where this gets interesting and where I think if my thesis ultimately has holes in it outside of NIM compression, which is, you know, what they earn on the spread. So banks from an income statement perspective, which is kind of a secondary discussion, this whole idea of what will deposit shares do over the next one to 20 years, 
even though they've done well in terms of deposits, they've been hit very hard by the fact that NIMS have continued to uh, compress. So, right. So, and just so if, if you don't know, that's just the net interest margin, which is like basically if you're a bank and uh, you a, a consumer comes to you and opens up a savings account and they put a thousand dollars in it as a bank, you might be paying 1% to them uh, in interest rates, but you're taking that money for say a mortgage and you're lending it out at a three and a half percent interest rate. So uh, like, so if you're not familiar that, that NIM, because interest rates come down, it's getting narrower and narrower for banks. They're not making as much profits on these deposits as they used to. And so, yeah. So what happened to them? It was like you were saying previously, it was they lent at the five and they paid me the one, the 1%. Well, as of rates have come in, they've paid me considerably less. So now I'm getting, you know, 0.1 or 15 basis right. points, whatever right. it may be. So that compressed 85 bips, but the five compressed the three, 3%. So what they're earning compressed 200 bips versus the 85 bips, of compression on what they're paying. So yeah, NIMS have come in pretty significantly. So you know, that's part of the conversation. I, I think to your point, since we last spoke, I, I dug in more on kind of some of these digital banks, which more from a deposit perspective than maybe, you know, squares and some other things like that. But you look at someone like Ally, Ally Bank has gone from from zero to, I think they're at uh, about 125 billion in deposits now, largely retail deposits. And it's an online only bank with no branches. So there is some validity to this idea that that will meet a need for certain people, especially if they have the ability to offer higher interest rates, which obviously matters more to some people than it does for others. Then if you look at the market share data, Ally has presented numbers, which is as good of data as I can find that suggests like these digitally digital only type banks in terms of retail deposits have maybe gone from about 6% of the market a decade ago to about 10% today which is certainly meaningful growth um, as it relates to those biggest banks. I think what you saw happen was a lot of that share, maybe not directly, but it was offset by the growth that they had from, uh, you know, uh, beating out some of those midsized and smaller banks. So long story short, if you look at someone like JPM, I, I think in some cases they're actually, they're adding branches because they they're, they're finding ways to do that that they think is intelligent and all these banks over time, we'll have to balance all their con- consumer focus points, whether it's having the best app or having branches where people want them and will use them. So, you know, I'm not entirely entirely sure that there's reason to believe that the dep- deposit franchise part of the bank thesis has certainly been broken yet or even is truly under threat. At the same time, if rates continue to compress at some point, you're going to be in a weird place where <laughs> you're going to have a business. that's not very good. And uh, it's not too clear to me how you get out of that, unless you start doing things like charging directly for checking accounts or, you know, finding ways to do things with fees, which, which may have already been regulated away between, you know, like some of the regulation we have to the financial crisis. So it could be an industry that, you know, like any kind of commodity type business, if, if what you're getting on what you sell is, is, is uh, less lucrative than it used to be, that might just be a very difficult spot to be in. It's kind of like an energy company. So I don't think we necessarily disagree on a lot of this stuff. I think it's just that uh, um, you might have better insight too into how companies like Square are going to take their position to debt. You know, I, I think of something like the Cash App. Sure. I see what it is now it's not entirely clear to me what that becomes and in some ways, even what that, what is it becoming a replacement for the extent I use it for payments? I guess in some ways it's kind of replacing a credit card where I'm paid rewards. And the idea would be that I either receive better rewards or it's a more intuitive, uh, you know, better user experience something along those lines. So this is what I would say about cash app. And I think probably the same thing about PayPal or Venmo even. Um, like a, a, a couple of years ago, Cash App was just a peer-to-peer payments platform. It, mm-hmm. You know, it, it wasn't anything else. And then over time they added, oh, here's a debit card and you can have rewards when you shop at Square Sellers, which is neat because PayPal and Square both offer a two-sided network. Like they're with consumers and they're with merchants. So I, I think they, one, I think both of them are going to be able to leverage that. 
um, so they added, so Cash App, they added the debit card. And so they, um, and they offered rewards when you shopped at Square Sellers. And they, all, they also started offering other rewards just with other merchants. And then they added, uh, you can buy cryptocurrency on our app. So now you can buy and sell cryptocurrency on our app. And then they added, uh, you can buy stocks on our app, commission free. And mm-hmm. I just think like, I mean, the trend is like, they're just adding more and more capabilities. And what I would say to you, is kind of like what we were just talking about streaming platforms where what's my Hulu pa- password Oh, now I got to go to Disney plus to watch this. So it's kind of like the same thing. So I guess the thesis would be like, if this continues, like I just see a, a young, very digitally digital savvy uh, consumer want to control everything on one super app like all their finances on one super app where they have their a debit or credit card tied to uh which like demo has both a debit and credit card i think cash app just has the debit card uh they have uh a peer-to-peer payments they have um they can pay at, at merchants like uh with, with the cash app or with demo or with paypal uh and they can buy stocks on it they can buy cryptocurrency on it and I, I think the next, to me, the way it's going is pretty soon it'll be direct deposits. You know, you can have your, your money direct deposited into it. And already, if you have Cash App and your employer uses uh, Square as their payment system, like they can instantly give you money uh, for, your, for your paycheck. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you, you know, where I see that as like... Uh, um, as attractive. And then the square seller uses square payroll and the square payroll pays the cash app. And I see that like, I, I just see it like that's to me, uh, if it doesn't work out that way, I don't think it, it breaks the thesis by any means. However, I believe there's this possible future where say we're talking about cash app and square. We're just like, they're just taking over this entire system. JP Morgan chase. Let's, just take them. And I like JP Morgan. I, I used to own shares. I don't anymore because I got tired of banks, but to me, it's like a great bank, bank of America too. I, I, I'm not going to say anything bad about JP Morgan chase or bank of America. I don't own shares. It's not for me, but I think they're fine companies, but JP Morgan has had point of sales with merchants for forever. And, and they, you know, a, a few years ago, they were trying to make chase pay a thing, you know, never once was it like, Hey, if you're an employer and you use uh, our point of sales, are we going to pay you on Chase Pay if you have a JP Morgan checking account? And it'll be instantly and it'll be better. And it was, uh, do you know who Sean Emery is? It sounds familiar. Who is He's that? He's on Twitter. Uh, he, he manages money out of Miami. We, we interviewed him a, a, a little bit ago. And, and he, he leans more towards fintech than banks. And the way he said it is big banks can invest in technology uh, or invest in innovation, but they're not building it. Uh, and I, I just feel like the, these these players, the PayPal's and the Squares, they're just go, always going to be ahead. But as the nature of the beast, almost they're just they're just going to be ahead of the legacy players. Now I still think the Chases, the Bank of America, they'll they'll have time to play catch up. Like it's not like they need to roll out these innovations like the next month after Square does it. You know, th- no, no, they 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 have a couple years to do it and. Uh, a few years to do it before it becomes a big thing. And I think they, they will eventually get around to it. However, while that's taking place, while they're playing catch up, I just think that as more younger consumers become employees and enter the workforce, uh, not even millennials, Gen Z, uh, I think these will be very attractive offerings where they can rule their whole financial lives with an app on their phone. That's very intuitive and easy to understand and I just, I just think like there's a, a better than, I think there's a good possibility like that's like these fintechs like that, like Cash App, like PayPal, take a lot of market share going down the path they're going. I, I think that's all very fair. And I think this is, this is actually a really good conversation because I think it ties into everything that we've discussed so far, which gets to the idea of banks like any other business. I think their competitive position in terms of deposits is very, very, very strong. And banks in general, you don't really lose deposit share to a certain extent. It's a very sticky business. That said, no business is great 
or very, very, very few businesses are great and will remain so if they do not operate efficiently and get better over time. So the extent- and to your point, it, it's it's a pain to right. change your direct deposit information to go to your employer. Like a few years ago, this is when I was, I mean, this goes back maybe six, seven years when I was really getting, starting to take my finances and investing more seriously. And there was like some offer $500 or something to change your direct deposit account. And if you make all these thresholds, they'll give you $500 at the end of six months. And I'm like, we're going to do this. And I'm never doing that again. <laughs> like, you know, it was <laughs> like you go to your employer, you have to change that. You have to change all your information online, like all your accounts that you're paying into, uh, you know, that changes your utility. It's, it's the worst. And if you forget one thing, like your electric bill didn't get paid that month because you forgot to switch it over or, right. or whatever. And you're trying to manage it as you're transitioning, you have this awkward transition phase where, uh, you know, well, the money's not into my new account yet. And, uh, but I still have some money in my old account. So with this bill that's coming up, what account do I pay it from? It's, it's horrible. It's horrible. Right. To, so to your point, it really is a sticky business. Right. Now that said, you know, I've, I've seen, I think it was Chime, which is, you know, one of these kind of fintech right. startups. And yep. part of their, part of their pitch and part of the appeal of the offering was, I'm going to butcher this now, but they essentially could pay you two days early, something like that. It, it was something in terms of how you could get paid right. um, a little bit quicker than you do from a traditional bank. And they essentially asked the CEO about it. And he said, we can just check this data against federal, federally available information. We're not, this isn't any sort of risk. We know these people are getting paid. And it's just an example of, is that something that a big bank couldn't copy? No. Right. But they need to do a better job of finding right. out what are the selling points for some of these competitive offerings? Are we truly losing a position that we have here that could potentially hurt us over long periods of time? And yeah, admittedly, they, they probably need to do better on those fronts. Now, as we discussed at the start, from an investment perspective, some of this comes down to valuation. Some, some of this comes down to, you know, as you were just mentioning, some of this business is really sticky. So what is the real risk here? What does this look like in 2025 or 2030? I think so far, a lot of it has been a NIM story and has been an earnings power story. And then obviously you get sideswiped by a pandemic, which is unlike anything we've ever seen before. And it really makes people wonder, what are we dealing with here in terms of reserves and what kind of losses will the banks endure, et cetera? So banks always have that component of it uh, to the business, but I certainly don't think it's out of the woods. And I look at something like Ally and I wonder, it's a little bit different than some of the squares and things like that, but I look at it and as I think, I go, is this comparable to Geico competing with um, State Farm or Allstate? In the sense that Ally can go to market and fight for deposits against legacy competitors in a way that they might have a structural advantage in the sense that a Wells Fargo might not be able to change in certain ways. And again, they went from zero to 125 billion in a decade, which is obviously meaningful growth. So I'm not positive. I continue to look at them and learn and talking to someone like yourself has helped me in that regard. And, you know, as always with these discussions, it's part of a portfolio and part of the consideration is how can I invest in an idea that I believe in, but put myself in a position to not get hurt too badly if I'm wrong. So sure, sure. I think that's no. also a big part of managing a portfolio and being an investor. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, just like, so the, wrapping it up uh, and I, to be fair, I, I didn't, I, I didn't, uh, I, I didn't tell you, I was going to ask you this, but like, I, I just saw some of your recent articles, like, so it, what stock in your portfolio or on your watch list, are you very interested in that you can share that you feel is, is too hated by the market? That sentiment is too much against, but you're, but you're interested or a shareholder of. Huh. Well, if you'd asked me a couple weeks ago, I would have said Yelp, but they got, I mean, this vaccine news is obviously very well um, appreciated by the market. I think it was a company that strategy was, you know, Yelp is, it's really been just a consumer review platform. And in my mind, even since they'd gone public, it was never really clear how this was going to become a sustainable business that could make money. And I think in the last handful of years, you've seen them change their go-to-market strategy. 
And there were some signs that it was really working at the start of the year with some of the monthly data they revealed. And then obviously COVID happened and that was absolutely terrible for them. So the stock got crushed and I thought it got to a level where it was pretty cheap, but now they, they reported one decent quarter and really the people responded well to the vaccine news. So I don't think it's as cheap as it was. Um, outside of that, I'm trying to think. So are, are they at risk of being disintermediated though by like Google? Like yeah, where? I mean, potentially I, part of it's going to be, it's going to be, it's funny for all these things. A lot of it comes down to, they need to take their ability to focus like a Netflix or a Spotify would and really continue to improve the product. An example would be now they've had a lot of success in home and local. They've partly done that by building out offerings like request a quote where you can, you know, you can send a local plumber, you can send them, Hey, here's a picture of my toilet or my sink. I don't really know what the problem is. Here's a description of what I think the problem is. You can send that out to a plumber. When you do that, Yelp will say, Hey, here's three other plumbers in your area that have high reviews. Do you want to send it to them as well? So, you know, you, nice. you can see how as the product moves past yeah. kind of the traditional just restaurant reviews, something that Google can copy relatively easily. As you move down the funnel and get closer to what the consumer is really looking for, which is a solution to their problem, there could be potentially be opportunities there. So that it's still unproven and it's a small business at this point. But yeah, it certainly has Google risk. And that's been, you know, part of the consideration for a long time. Um, besides that, I'm trying to think. Uh, that 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 works. That that was good. Right. That was good. Yeah, yeah. That's a long way of saying I don't really see anything that I can buy right now. It's particularly <laughs> cheap, but I hope sure. to find something eventually. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Definitely. Uh, let's wrap up our conversation there. Uh, science. Where can people find you if they're interested in following you? Uh, the easiest place to go is probably on Twitter. Uh, T S O H underscore investing. And then I write on guru focus and I, and we'll definitely uh, link that in the piece accompanying the podcast episode, if you're interested. So there's seven investing.com uh, for link to all of uh, sciences articles. Uh, they're definitely very good. He, he writes regularly. Um, but science of hitting ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you so much for coming on today and discussing investing with us. Again, I'm Matthew Cochran, lead advisor with 7investing, and we're here to empower you to invest in your future. Have a great day, everyone. A reminder that people on this program may hold positions in the companies that are mentioned. Buying and selling stock carries financial risk, which could include the loss of capital. The views in this program should not be taken as personalized advice. Before acting on any of the information provided, listeners are encouraged to consult a financial or tax professional.